This morning's message is titled, The Cost to Follow Christ. Uh, the text will be in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. If you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me as we read this morning. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother and wife, and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. <clears throat> Several years ago, we had a home in Pine River. It was a newer home that had been built on a piece of property. It also had an older cabin that was in poor condition. When we had purchased this home, there was a man living in the older cabin that was paying a small amount of rent to stay there. After a few months, he moved out and I was left with this cabin. I had a couple of decisions, a couple different options I could go with. We could either try to fix it up a bit and rent it out again, or we could tear it down. I had decided that rather than fix it up, I would tear it down and salvage the lumber to build myself a new garden shed. So I began without any blueprints or even a thought-out plan. I just thought I would figure it out as I went. So I bought some shingles and pieced a few things together and started to tear this cabin apart. But as you can imagine, I wasn't really prepared for what I was up against. I soon found myself with a half-finished shed that I couldn't afford to finish and a half-demolished cabin, which was not in any condition to rent out but I couldn't afford to demolish it. You see, my error was I did not think ahead of my actions. I didn't stop to count the cost of building a shed. My goal this morning in today's text is to see what the cost of being a disciple is and also to use it as a plumb line to see if our walk with Christ is measuring up to the high standards that he has set for us. Let's take a closer look at verses 25 through 26. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, 
He cannot be my disciple. When you read through this, the first thought that comes to mind is typically how our walk with Christ will affect our family life. Are our parents believers? Were we raised in a Christian home? Maybe you were raised a different faith. These are all very valid concerns, things that we need to weigh. After all, as children and young adults, our family is where we find our identity. It's where our first understanding of love comes from. It's where we feel like we belong. The call for the Christian is to no longer find comfort and satisfactions in our families, but only in Christ. This is a lesson that I had to learn in my marriage. As newlyweds, my wife and I let our lives hinge on our relationship and what its current condition was. We found our fulfillment in our children, and that was the glue that held our marriage together. This wasn't a sustainable life for the believer. The Lord shattered what we had built and then rebuilt our family with Christ as the foundation. We must always put our relationship with Christ above all others. We need that solid foundation in Christ or it will, it will not stand. Relationship with Christ can and will cause division in your family. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verse 49. This is Christ speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would it that I, it were already kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Recently, a family member that I was very close to was found to be in a, a serious habitual sin. This individual was also a professing believer. It's not, uh, it's not easy or fun to have to confront someone you are close, close to about sin in their life. But we are called to do this as the believer. This is another cost of following Christ. Stepping out in faith to do something you do not want to do knowing that it is for the sake of Christ. I brought this particular person to the book of 1 John. Chapter 1, verse 6 says that if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Sometimes this division that Christ warns us of in Luke 14 may even have to be forced, as in my case. This individual did not repent of this sin, and so I had to bring them to 1 Corinthians 5. Turn with me there, if you would, for a moment. Verse 
It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is no good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual, sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. The commandment here is harsh, but necessary. It's unavoidable. Do not even eat with such a person. Deliver this man to Satan. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge the evil person from among you. These are not easy things to say to a loved one. This does not sound like the typical American God is love that you always hear about. But it's truth. It's God-breathed. We are warned in Luke 14 that we may be called to speak to loved ones with so much honesty and intensity that it may cost us everything we thought we had. I should stop here for a moment to reiterate that 1 Corinthians 5 is referring to a fellow believer, someone that professes Christ but does not live it. Notice at the end of the chapter, Paul makes sure to emphasize, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Those in our family who are not professing Christ are not held to the same standards, although we still are called to proclaim the gospel to them, which is still typically outside of our comfort zone. Another meaning to this scripture goes back to the great commandment. Turn with me for a moment to Matthew 22, verse 35. You'll notice I have you turning a lot here today. So, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the laws, the law and prophets. We are called to love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. The degree of our love for God should be so much that our love for our families would look like hatred in comparison. This seems like an impossible task, but the more that we fellowship with Christ and the more we seek after him, the more we'll be sanctified and made like him. I'm going to jump back to the text here. Verses 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brother, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This love should be so great that it would appear that we even hate our own life. If we are unable to bear our own cross, we cannot be his disciple. A man is called to stand with Christ through public humiliation, shame, imprisonment, even death. If we truly hate our own life in comparison to our love of God, would it be so hard to pray in public? If we truly can bear our own cross, couldn't we share the gospel with our neighbor? Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We fear what others will think of us or of offending someone more than what our Heavenly Father thinks of us. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 54, please. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said to him, You also are one of him. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. How sobering is that? Christ turned and looked at him. Can you imagine? There was no need for words. That looks at it all. Peter's guilt and shame for betraying his Lord had overpowered him. I can imagine as he wept, 
He would give anything to take it back. To have that chance again to stand with Christ and die with him. I am burdened by the thought of all the times that I have felt the Lord leading me to share the gospel with someone or to speak truth to a brother, but for fear of the reaction they might have, I stayed silent. I've denied Christ. When I stand before God's holy throne, will I too weep bitterly? When I must give an account for all my actions. Brothers, I challenge us next time we think we're too nervous to declare Christ. Put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment. Imagine Christ looking at you, waiting your response. I encourage you, brothers, hate yourself. Hate the flesh, that part of you that holds you back, that will bring only regret and sorrow. Pick up your cross and bear it, that we would all be worthy of our call. I'm going to pick back up here in verse 28. 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see, see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. In the first portion of this text, Christ warns the crowds of the toll that following him will take on their families. For many, this is the single most important thing in their life. Those of the crowd, in the crowd who live in pottery, poverty likely had nothing else. In this portion of the text, we are told that we must first sit down and really count the cost of following Christ. We are warned not to start something that we are unable to finish. What are the costs of following Christ? The most immediate and the first cost that most new believers will face is to let go of your sin, letting go of our fleshly desires. Apart from Christ, nobody really wants to let go of their sin. It's something that we desire typically an addictive desire, something we cannot let go of apart from Christ. I think back to when I first really started to submit my life to the Lord. Letting go of going out and partying with my friends wasn't easy. It was something that I had enjoyed doing. We as fallen creatures tend to find comfort in the things that can be most destructive to us. In Romans chapter 8, Paul warns us of this struggle, this constant battle between the flesh and the spirit. I'm going to go to Romans 8, verse 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can no longer allow our flesh to rule our minds and our desires. Another cost of being a disciple is letting go of our desire for money, for gain. Remember the rich young man from Matthew 19. He was willing to keep all the laws and commandments. He desired to follow Christ, but he was not willing to part with his possessions. The cost was too great for him. As believers, we may be called to sell all that we own for the cause of Christ. Is this a cost that we're willing to pay? We may be called to be content with a mediocre job for the rest of our lives so that we might focus our time and energy on kingdom work. We may be called to give when there is little to share. What about our reputation? Our status in society? Christianity is tolerated here in the United States, but there may come a time when that is not the case. Many Christians are forced to hide their faith from their friends and neighbors for fear of being labeled a Christian. In many cases, this could even cost them their lives. Are we willing to suffer through persecution on account of Christ? Or is this cost too great? In 1 Peter 4, Peter warns us of the persecution to come but also encourages us with the blessing that comes with it. I'm going to turn to 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Holy the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter tells us not to be surprised at the persecution to come. We are to expect it. This is the cost that we can count on. In verses 31 through 32 of our original text, we see the analogy being made to warfare. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. A wise king will not go to war unless he is first determined he can win. Likewise, we must first weigh the cost, the expectations of us as believers to determine whether we can succeed or not. Can we withstand the spiritual battles that are to come? Verse 33 says that we must renounce all that we have to be Christ's disciple. Everything that we know, everything that we love, are we willing or even able to pay the cost of following Christ? I submit to you this morning, the answer is no. Turn with me for a moment to Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Apart from Christ, none of us would be able to give all that we have to follow God, let alone be willing to. It is only by, the, by grace through faith that we are able to succeed where the flesh will fail. Praise the Lord. So why is Christ telling us here that we must first count the cost of following him 
if we are unable to do so apart from him? I believe there's two answers. One is, as we saw in Ephesians, to give the glory to Christ and to show us our need for his grace. For us to see that we are literally unable to do this on our own. The second I have found to be a plumb line. When I started working on this sermon, this scripture really cut me to the heart. When I read this scripture, I asked myself, does this ring true in my life? Has my commitment to Christ really cost me my family? Should it? Am I really being as bold as I am called to be? Am I daily bearing my cross? Am I renouncing all that I have on account of Christ? Am I really being persecuted? If we are told in Luke 14 that these are the costs of being a disciple, are we paying them? Does it hurt church to be a believer? Are we suffering on account of Christ? Or are we getting a little too comfortable here up in northern Minnesota? Is there really no persecution here? Or are we passively avoiding it? Are we content to simply come to church on Sunday with our friends that share the same beliefs and values? But when we walk out that door, do we suddenly blend in with the world a little too well? Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. We have ears this morning, Providence. Let us hear. Let us examine ourselves. Let's pray earnestly for the church, Providence. Let's not lose our saltiness. I want for a moment to come back to Peter after he had denied Christ. Christ had even warned him that he would do it, but in the flesh it was second nature. Is this where it ended for Peter? After he wept bitterly, was he unable to finish what he had started? Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify Christ. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Do you love me, Peter? Prove it. I know in the flesh, in a moment of weakness, you denied me. But if you truly love me, then prove it. Tend my flock. Follow me. He tells Peter how he will be martyred and then commands him to follow him. This is our call, church. Let us follow him. We have all denied Christ at one point or another far too many times. Do not stay satisfied with mediocrity. If we cannot see the cost of following Christ in our lives, then it is time for us to pick up our cross and bear it. I have one final point, then we'll close. We have determined this morning that there is a great cost to be a disciple of Christ. But I would also like to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that there is also a great reward. Turn with me to Revelation 19, verse 6, please. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What an amazing glimpse into the future that we have with Christ. We will be seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb, finally united with Christ, worshiping God in all his glory. All the sufferings and the hardships, the costs of being Christ's disciples will be but a distant foggy memory at that moment. There will be no regrets for any suffering on account of Christ. This morning, we're also blessed with a chance to get a small taste of this marriage supper. A sneak peek, if you will. We'll turn to Matthew 26, verse 26.
Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. Christ has given us communion in anticipation for the marriage supper that is to come in our Father's kingdom. As we prepare for communion this morning, I just want to encourage everyone to take a moment in prayer before we partake. I've asked the worship team to give us a couple extra minutes for prayer and for self-examination. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So in a moment, I'll ask the worship team to come up. And as the music starts, start with the back rows and come forward and serve yourselves and be seated. And then I'll just ask that we have just a couple, couple moments of prayer. And then I'll come back up and we can start. Heavenly Father, this morning as we prepare for communion, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that this would be time for us to examine ourselves, Father. I pray that we would repent, Father, of anything that's convicting us, Lord. I just pray that, uh, Father, that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.